Oh, oh, one more thing. I'm John Morris, and on this episode, we'll be discussing Publish or Perish. Originally broadcast on January 18, 1974, directed by Robert Butler, written by Roll the Dice Peter S. Fisher, and starring Jack Cassidy, Mickey Spillane, Marriott Hartley, John Davis Chandler, and, of course, Peter Falk as Columbo. And we're always joined by a special guest. This time, it's writer and commie simp, Leonard Pierce. But before we bring him on, John... Uh, please yes, tell me, you. please tell me what threads I'll be neglecting to follow up on this episode. Uh, I can never predict that, RJ. But I will tell you what happened in this episode. Jack Cassidy plays Riley Greenleaf, the most Muppet name having killer in Columbo history, and the most meticulous. Not only does the crooked and lurid publisher arrange for two murders, but he also concocts as many as four alibis to cover his leather, silk, and polyester keister. Furious that one of his top-selling authors plans to break his contract and shack up with a rival publisher, maybe literally, Greenleaf entices a mad bomber with literary aspirations to plug him like a nickel and frame Riley for the murder? Why would he arrange that? Because Riley's also loading up on alibis. His car got broken into. He's a mean drunk. He stole a manuscript. He's saucy to the cops. He sassed a fat lady. Wow. <laughs> The end product is that the oily creep keeps the cops dancing on a string, anticipating every new revelation and responding to it with practice smarm, ensuring not only his vengeance, but also a million-dollar payday from the victim's life insurance. It's one for the books. Literally. I mean, literarily. Actually, I don't mean either of those. Yeah. And only only Columbo, straight up not buying the story, stands in his way. Thank you, John. Leonard, welcome back to the show. Uh, we've done this thing in the past where if someone's been on talking about a 90s episode we bring them on for a much better 70s episode eh, technically you were on originally for a 70s episode that was our pilot pilots never count so we made you yeah, sit through right we made you sit through undercover so we gave you a jack cassidy a jack cassidy uh with a very classic uh, uh crime noir uh writer is a victim so uh, there you go i hope we hope we uh, did you justice there Made up for undercover. Yes. Well, I, I really appreciate the attempt to make up for the really terrible episode you made me watch last Oh, that time, thing so. was awful. That that thing is a bent... That thing is like a... Oof. That That's a bar. That's a bar we will not... That we will not yeah. get to until we get to the Strange Bedfellows, I think. But, yeah. I have to say, I almost feel bad that we're not saving undercover for the last episode, because I think it's no. worse than Strange Bedfellows. Yeah, but, but, that, but I think we've, it's, we've built up the mythology, in this sad, yeah. sad, pathetic little mythology we've built up for our <laughs> podcast. Strange Bedfellows is this huge monolith that's standing there at the end of everything. And as I think it's as, probably... Yeah, it's a better example because it it actually follows the Columbo premise, whereas Undercover was just all over the map. So. Yeah, that was not good. That was not good. We apologize for that with a Jack <laughs> Cassidy episode. Oh, Letter, yes, lettered. Uh, not with... just a Jack Cassidy episode. Yes, it's a Mickey Spillane episode. I know Mickey Spillane is in this, which is the oddest thing. He's the little old Mickey Spillane is just in here. And he's in it very briefly until he gets, like, just offed by a weird, like, explosives creep, which is fun. Yeah. His face yeah, is astonishing. We, we, but who? Considering X? how... Chandler. John Davis Chandler. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. No, yeah, the explosives creep. Yeah. His face is just... Well, I, I, think yeah. you mean, I think you mean Rick from The Young Ones. <laughs> The thing is, I, I here's the thing. I know you guys. This will be up your alleys. Uh, when I was watching like Cassidy and uh, Chandler in the uh, the explosives guy interact, I was thinking, who would these guys have played in like some like further seasons of a Batman like late sixties, early seventies <laughs> TV show? And I'm not sure exactly who they would have done. I mean, what, what do you guys think they would have done? You mean Cassidy and Chandler, or just anybody on the show? Cassidy and Chandler. Oh, Cassidy's such a... He's so perfect for Batman, it's actually a shame that he was never on it. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's. I think Cassidy would have taken over as the Joker once uh, Cesar Romero was like, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> no, I'm I think finished. I know who I, I... I think I know exactly who I would cast him as, even though in my dream casting I have somebody else for it. But who is the it, too? The Gentleman Ghost. Oh, God! 
Good lord, yes. Mm-hmm. Just okay. turning invisible periodically. Yeah, that's good. That would be good. Okay, that's not bad. And Chandler? Leonard, you got anything? Oh, Leonard's um, dead. Um, I don't know who was the who was Batman's most uh, tendentiously gay uh, <laughs> villain. You remember the Eraser? That was the guy who dressed as a pencil, <clears throat> and he <laughs> he he figured out Batman's secret identity. Because he used to sit behind Bruce Wayne in college, yes. and he, he recognized the uh, the aftershave that Bruce Wayne used. So maybe that's it. <laughs> sure. So he he defeated Batman by smelling him. So is that maybe Chandler playing that guy? Yeah, Chandler Chandler yeah. can be the eraser. That'd be great. All right. Give him give him a necessary yeah, I mean, edge. But whoever he plays this guy, because this guy, both Jack Cassidy and Riley Greenleaf, the character he plays, have an amazing line in extremely bitchy one-liners oh yes like they have a lot of really bitchy zingers in this episode so oh, definitely. cassidy is sassity that's why i like him there you go yes and i think he's still is, my favorite is this this is our final he only had three this is our final one of his yeah. i think right yeah yes it is oh yeah. my god we still have like a 20 uh rubber culp wants to go so the rubber culp I, conspiracy, conspiracy theorists amongst our listenership they still have fuel so we mean go. the one guy yeah yeah Sorry, I didn't. I was. Did we all get really dreamy? What just happened? No, I thought someone else would fill in the gap for once. (laughs) Well, push forward. Let's push forward. All right. And uh, there's so much to talk about in this episode. Yes, exactly. Because it's a really good episode. I think we're all. Oh, it's great. Yes. It's it's possibly my and again huge Jack Cassidy fan, Mm -hmm. and I think this is my favorite of his three appearances. Oh, okay. And I was, it's a real tight, it's tight between this one and uh, Murder by the Book. Right. Because Murder by the Book does have a really good pedigree in terms of writer and director. And it's a good story, but I feel like this one is just, it's terrific that Riley Greenleaf has put so many moving parts into, into play, which is usually the sign of a really poorly thought out script. But it works this time because yes. he... He makes the cops jump. He just does, he wasn't predicting that the cop would be Columbo. Well, I'm going to ask you mm-hmm. because that 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 speaks to uh, the structure, the script, and in your intro, you referred to Peter S. Fisher as "roll the dice," Peter S. Fisher. Yeah. Uh, so, if you could uh, go a bit more on that, uh, well, you made that point because I think Fisher it, it has simply, yeah. written. Yeah, he's written I think nine episodes, mm-hmm. uh, and those have included. Uh, this one, of course, A Friend Indeed, one of Great our one. favorite yes. ones, directed by Ben Gazzara. Right. Uh, Exercise in Fatality, which was a strong Great. one. That was, yes. uh, I can't remember his name, Robert, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Negative Reaction, okay one. Deadly State of Mind, I do love that one. Yep. Old Fashioned Murder, that's one I really liked, you didn't. Mm-hmm. He also wrote Rest in Peace, Mrs. Columbo. Oh, well, uh, okay. And, uh, and Strange Bedfellows. Oh, okay, well, huh. And he also, <laughs> like, co created and ran. Uh, Murder She Wrote for thirty five years too. That's also which, true. Yeah. Eh, which is all right. I know you're not. But uh, so he's real roll the dice because you never know if you're going to get a classic or if you're going to get Rest in Peace, Mrs. Columbo. Well, the, and the thing is, back in these early days, you don't know exactly what their process was in terms of you submit the script and how much of it went through a writers' room process or the executive yeah. producers kind of reworking things a bit like what that was in the 70s ones versus the 90s ones. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, well, I think that what know. happened here was that they were able to get a really good script out of him because they spent no more than two seconds coming up with the title. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. They're like, that's okay, good. well, this one it takes place in the publishing industry, so publish your parish. All right, <laughs> we're done. Let's move on yeah, to yeah, the yeah. Um, so the Mickey Spillane thing, that is a definite surprise that, had he done Let's really... talk at great length about Mickey Spillane. Yes, because had he done other acting stuff like this at all? I, I'm not really aware oh, yeah, of him. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, really? Yeah. Okay. Because I'm not aware of him doing this so sort of thing. So thing about Mickey Spillane. Okay. Mickey Spillane is, of course, the most hard-boiled of hard-boiled detective novelists. Oh, sure, yes. He's also... It's also probably the worst. He's a bad writer. Oh, yeah. You know, and I risk offending many of my uh, theoretical audience of uh, noir fans by saying that. But (laughs) Spillane is not a great writer. Great work has been done based on his books, but he is not a great writer to the extent that 
I believe it was um, uh, maybe it's Mary McCarthy or um, uh, one of the big female novelists of the time was talking about Ian Rand and said, Ian Rand is so bad, she makes Mickey Spillane look like Dostoevsky. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, was not, that was not meant as a compliment to Mickey wow. Spillane. Dang. That's a deep um, insult. That is a yeah. lot. But the great thing about Mickey Spillane is he not only was completely conv- – like, he was convicted uh, to that role. Like, he was very sincere. There was no irony about the man. And he um, he wanted to uh, – be a great actor as well. You know, he didn't want to really? just be a novelist. Yeah, to and try doing so a different kind of acting. Yeah. And so when he um started to hit a big, you know, his first novel, I the Jury, the first my camera novel was a huge hit. And um when he wanted to uh you know there was a very, very great movie made in 1955 by Robert Aldrich called Kiss Me Deadly. Oh my God, yes. One of my favorite, one of my favorite films. It's a great movie. Yeah. Yeah, based I, on I feel like, a Mickey... Uh, I, and Spillane wanted to play... He wanted to play Mike Hammer in Kiss Me Deadly. No. Really? Oh, God, and, no. And, uh, in fact, the, you know, there was a big... Uh, there was a big controversy at the time because he initially didn't want to sell the rights to the movie unless he got to play Mickey's, uh, Mike Hammer. Oh. And uh, later on, he actually, they, they convinced him otherwise, and the result was a great movie. Yes. But a few years later, in the early 60s, there was a Mickey, another Mike Hammer movie called The Girl Hunters, okay. in which Mickey Spillane actually did play Mike Hammer. Oh, no. Oh, no. And, and as I think we can all, having seen this episode, agree... Mickey Spillane, not a good actor. Yeah, because the the, the uh, very very brief screen time he has, you feel like you can. You're like, oh, you he's an author. The... He's an author uh, playing an author. Okay, that's good. They well, gave him that. Not just thing. that. It's that yeah. you can you can see the cue cards reflected off of his eyeballs. Right, <laughs> but I mean, but this even if you feel like he was on there just enough, playing. He was a writer playing a writer. That's fine, and you would get the impression that. Oh, he's one of these guys. He knows his limits, but apparently, no, he did not know his limits and thought he could do much better. No, and he could not. He did not. And like oh, one of my favorite no. things about this episode, one of my favorite things about it is, I think this is actually a very well directed episode. Yeah. But in the scenes where uh, Mickey Spillane is on camera, like in the groups where he's at that party, yes, and Greenleaf shows up and confronts him and all that. You, in the in every scene, it's shot like a regular TV scene. You know, it's a multi-camera setup, and you can see the actors acting off of each other. But whenever Spillane is on camera, it's just him, and he's obviously just looking at cue cards because he was so bad. Like I think they probably shot his stuff separately. Well, I mean, the thing is, yeah, you got the scene with him at the party with Marriott Hartley and the uh, the uh, the stout fellow. But the that's trash a, heap from Fraggle Rock, I think. Right, yes. Um uh, but the um uh the bulk of his uh, scene work is sitting by himself in an office uh, saying lines into a microphone, uh, which kind of is yeah, that that's probably what it was. Like they figured like that was the yeah, safest bet. There's a just, reason for that. Just, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh dear. Right writing maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember either you guys probably uh, I think probably at least one of you guys remember seeing the beer commercials that he did. Yep, mm-hmm. I remember those. Was he ever involved? Yeah, he was in those Miller... Yeah, Miller Light commercials. Yeah, he yeah, was, yeah, yeah. He was uh, in, the 80s. in those great less filling commercials. For, yep. And, like, even in those, his acting was so bad. Yeah. Like, he was getting out-acted by whatever meatheads were on screen with him. Well, the thing is, was he ever... So, I, I, I think it's very, it's very great that not only is he on the show... And he's acting badly, and he's portrayed as being this amazing writer, even oh. though his actual writing is pretty terrible. But, like, they managed to stick a lot of 
very not so subtle digs at his writing into oh, no. the script. Oh, they totally did. Because, I mean, the, uh, one of the things that's great is. Okay, so uh, to explain to folks who maybe haven't seen it, but you should have seen it. It's out there. You get on Netflix, you get the DVD, whatever. Uh, Hallmark Mysteries and Movies plays these things all the time. Um, he's martyred. He's this uh, writer who's written like uh, some very uh, huge, popular, best-selling novels, but he wants to branch out into more serious stuff, which with Mickey Splane, it's actually kind of almost seems like an inside joke, too. But he's res- he's like uh, reading into a tape recorder uh, lines from his most uh, recent in progress, very deep novel about someone in the Vietnam it's War. Terrible. Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, everyone acts like it's beautiful, except for there's this one cop at the crime scene after he's been murdered as they're playing oh, yeah. it. And there's one cop who, go- who goes something like, uh, like, oh, God, listen to that crap. Listen to that drivel. That's terrible. And that's like the only person in the episode who acts like he isn't the next coming of the best novelist ever, pretty much. Which I think is really interesting. It seems like that is kind of a dig, a little bit. Like someone who actually is just a everyday, workaday person hearing what the actual text is, going like, ugh, that sucks. It, it, it's like the, uh, the uh, stagehands holding their noses up in the uh, rafters in Citizen Kane, pretty much. <laughs> There's a moment where um, uh, Greenleaf calls him a pocket-sized Hemingway. Mm. Yes, yeah, which yeah. is like, very really? suitable because not only would he like kind of a miniature version of Hemingway in terms of being like having a hundredth of his talent, but he was also <laughs> kind of famously short. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. I like my favorite part about having Mickey Spillane, a uh, famous self-described tough guy, yep. a guy who's done everything in his power to paint himself up as being just as hard-boiled as as his characters, right. has... Yeah, that's the other thing about him, is that he always has this pretense that he's really Mike Hammer and right. that he's a real super tough guy. Yeah, But he has the, he has the weakest, like, the most dandyish name outside of Riley Greenleaf. His name's Alan Mallory. Yes! Right, yeah. which is yeah. not the tough, I mean, not a tough guy. Name. No. Yeah, right. And then, and the guy who kills him is named Eddie Kane, which is totally a tough guy. Oh, name. definitely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the guy who kills him, the guy who kills him, who wants to write his dream, his dream. Wants to write this the anarchist dream. cookbook. Yeah. yeah, pretty much to write yeah, this, a respectable version of it. Yeah, this this manual uh, for how to make your own bombs at home for the kids, because he's worried. You see these yeah, kids yeah. making bombs, pulling themselves. They don't know how to do it right. You want to have this. You want to have this book out there. So, uh, so the kids, the revolutionaries, they know how to make the bombs properly to blow things up. It's like, oh, that's he's, great. He's definitely writing it for young activists of the early seventies, and that is strangely appealing for a, a, a murderer slash victim. Which actually reminds me, have we ever had a murderer slash victim before? No, I don't think so. I feel like we might have had one, but yeah. But this one, yeah, it's very obvious. Where, like, the killer gets killed, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's too bad, too, because I really really liked Eddie. He was so strange. Yeah, very interesting. And it's... He was also the the most sinister guy to drive a VW Beetle since Lauren Visser in Blood Simple. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. Well, he's he's got a good background as a character villain in a lot of films... Uh, he's in Outlaw Josie Wales. He's in Adventures in Babysitting, for God's sake. What? That's right. He's got a, he's got a real really? rounded career. Yeah. Wow. Uh, all the way. Let's see. Oh, he was on the he was on the uh, the uh, L.A. Dragnet, I think. Wait, you know what I mean? The the sixties one the, or the newer one? No, no, the Dick Wolf one that with um. Oh, Ethan, what's his head in uh, Ed O'Neill? Ed O'Neill, the he guy that, that I always think. Wow. He was in that. Oh gosh. Yeah. He's, he's also in Hunter. He's in a couple murders she wrote. He's a good journeyman. Yeah, he's a good character actor villain for TV, and I think he, he was amazing. Oh, yeah, no, he's greatness. Th- very compelling in his madness. Very committed, yeah, very committed to it. Very, yeah. Um, th- I mean, just the intro to this episode is just him blowing things up in a junkyard when there's houses really nearby, and you think those people would be complaining to the police. <laughs> Their explosives going off, like right next to their houses. This guy's just throwing stuff off, timing the explosives, everything. It just, 
it, it's like the, the, the creepiest, creepiest dude, and he plays it so well. It's just so casual, too. Like, uh, when Cassidy wants him to do, like, the actual... Shoot, and you got to figure this guy, he's got to be disappointed that the murder he's being hired to do involves shooting as opposed to exactly. blowing something up. It's <laughs> it like, doesn't it's, have anything to do with explosives at it's all. It's beneath him. It's beneath him to do a, a shooting murder. That, that's nothing. That, that, that's, that's, that's easy. He's like, uh, just like when he brings that up, uh, the, the, the uh, bomb guys thing is just say like, oh yeah, he's already dead. That's nothing. Anyway, here, I'm going to set off another thing on this uh, car hood. It was, there was a, a pretty funny moment for us because we're watching him throw the things and they're mostly flashbangs, right? There's not, there's not a ton of destructive power in them or else car hoods would have been flying everywhere. Yeah. And, and just, just as we make that statement, he brings out the three sticks of dynamite. Right. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, that's, that'll blow up a car. Okay, good. Yeah, okay. Well, I think there's a thing where, like, um, Cassidy, he's trying to be this, like, suave, civilized guy. He's like, one shot in the heart, no more. And this guy's response is like, oh, economy, huh? <laughs> that's such a great line. That that's actually yeah. Oh god. He's really good. Cassidy's good. But they, yeah, it's it's great to have like basically a like a manic human skeleton versus <laughs> that like like a uh, rubber mask grinning cherub thing that Jack Cassidy has going on because physically they've got a good opposition to each other. Oh, definitely. Their, yeah. Their mannerisms are very different, and that they're united in purpose makes them really good villains. Well, things like it's story wise, I'm glad it just throws you directly into this very, at the very start of the episode, this very violent, explosive, strange thing that this guy's just, like, throwing explosives at, at rats and old cars and whatnot. And you've got, like, uh, Cassidy there just being, like, acting like he's, oh, this is above it all. It's a little bit too, he's too fancy for this stuff, but he's sort of enduring it for the sake of just getting this guy dead. Which mm-hmm. is really fun. Which which is a great... Especially for, like, uh, some TV show made in the 70s. Like, that's a really good, like, uh, noir thing there. Where it's like you've got, like, some high society swell and mixing it up with some sort of just creepy, weird, murderous, psychotic, low-level dude. And it's well, just, yeah. It's, it's a great that I really... The character note that I really liked between those two is that um, Eddie is such a low life, but oh, you know, yeah. he's got that the confidence of a low life criminal. Yes. He's like, well, no, he's you know, a when Cassidy later on gives him his great. big spiel, yeah. Well, you know, Cassidy Cassidy gives him his big highfalutin spiel, and you know, Eddie's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, I'll take care of it. You know, just playing it cool until <laughs> they bring up the possibility of Greenleaf publishing his book, and he's so and excited. then Eddie becomes this kind of wild. He's like, oh yes. boy, you know, I'm so excited. Yes. It's going to be such a great thing for the country, you know. Yep, yep. And it's done so well uh, later on when Cassie's about to kill him um, in his like weird above-the-garage apartment where the guy is very excited about it, wants to drink the champagne. He has no glasses for champagne, so it's like <laughs> beakers that are usually used for explosive chemicals. It was a beaker in a that. mason jar. Yeah. yeah. That's they have to use. Yeah, I don't think he has glasses for anything, let alone champagne. <laughs> no, he just has a bunch of files for like how to blow shit up, and that's it. Nothing else. How weird would it have been if he if he did drag out like two crystal cut champagne glasses? <laughs> He's got two flutes in there for the day. I've, I've been Champagne's saving these, my thing. Been saving these since Nam. <laughs> these are my these are my going away present from Nam. Yeah, which actually these, the boys in my unit gave this to me. The Vietnam thing, I think it's interesting how that plays into this whole thing. Yeah, they, uh, like they, whole thing they about, drop like, a line about it. A, a couple lines. The, fact, the thing about um, like Eddie just uh, just casually dropping that he had fragged dozens of people when he is an like it's nothing. And then later on talking about how you could not, at this point uh, in American history, American popular culture do any stories or films or anything about Vietnam because that's a plague sales wise, which I thought was kind yeah, of, which is absolutely true. That, yeah. No, yeah. Back period then, in history, right. Like in every other war, they've done big blockbuster movies during the war or right after it. Right. Yeah. But Vietnam was so unpopular, you know, like, uh, 
John Wayne did that um, Green Beret Green yeah, Berets right, movie, yes. and it bombed. Yeah. And that was and really that's huge like for... the only Vietnam movie until years after Vietnam. Yeah, you couldn't wait until like it had to wait till like the, the uh, mid late eighties to actually do that. But back then, this this episode was actually I thought it, it was interesting. They actually addressed that, like that was actually kind of a problem that nobody wanted to talk about that because you kind of associate with guys like Eddie who just was like, yeah, we killed a whole bunch of people over there, whatever. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, and then I think that there's there. Hmm, I don't know if this is Mickey Spillane's level of acting coloring the perception of it, but you do get the feeling that his let's call it a real dumb romanticization of a soldier's experience because this, the plot line he lays out is insipid. Oh yeah, no, I but, think like uh, uh, um, from um, oh god, uh, Rushmore. Uh, Max's <laughs> Max's play is better than what. Mickey yeah. Spillane seemed to be laying out. Like, it seemed a bit but more realistic that, than that. You think Spillane actually wrote that? Oh, of course not, I, no. No, 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 no. I think afterwards he probably thought about it. But uh, <laughs> oh, God. The, the point I was I was going to make was that, you know, there's always something that kind of makes the victim, either it's really, really sympathetic, or it makes it feel like the victim kind of deserved it. And there's no point when Spillane kind of deserved it until no. A, he started acting, and B, he started <laughs> reading that story into the tape. Because it is, it 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 did seem very disrespectful. Because you had a guy who'd actually been in Vietnam and had wrecked him, and he was now a lunatic. And then you had this guy writing a story about a man who betrayed his entire battalion, but now he's like, I'm sleeping with a Vietnamese girl, and later I'm going to go to a monastery, and then I'll be okay. Yeah, but you know what? You say that, but I mean, in terms of like the kind of deserving it thing, like in other Columbo episodes, and this mm-hmm. one, it's us just putting a taste thing on it, as opposed to this guy did not deserve to get murdered because the basic reason he was being murdered was because Riley Greenleaf didn't want him leaving his service financially as an author. That's it. That's the only reason. Let's, but it's us saying, like, oh, to... he was a shitty writer. Oh, we can see that now. It's like, yeah, it was a shitty writing. That's not a good reason for him to be murdered. It was being murdered because no, 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 no. I'm not saying that was a greedy fuck. Pretty much, I'm not saying that was the motive. I'm saying characters very often have background activity that makes you feel like, on some level, this might have not deserved, but it it lines them up as the obvious victim and helps mitigate the shock you might have at their murder. Eh. All right, and I I think that I'm trying to think of a really good example from a past one. You know, like. the more we learned about the uh, the art collecting uncle in suitable for framing right was that he was a miser and he was very distant from his nephew and it wasn't anything that made him deserve to be killed because his nephew was a shit right but it it did create the context where you understood why murders seemed acceptable in his circumstance and i don't think it's just money i think it's i think the audience is being lent to understand that whatever anybody else says, this is not a great writer, and he's not maybe being respectful of the subject matter. Well, that's a weird thing, though, because as the script goes, except for one guy, one cop saying it's not good at writing, you're told, the audience is told over and over again that this was going to be an amazing novel, this guy was going to do great stuff, the the movies wanted to do something with it, it was going to be a bestseller, it was going to be incredible. Well, it was going to be a bestseller. I don't know if it's ever actually... Like, they never say that he's a great literary writer. They say no, he's a they, successful yeah. writer. Right, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, is, and, is that is that a thing where you subconsciously put in the audience's mind that, eh, he was kind of shitty, so he wasn't actually that good, so, yeah, he kind of... world's better off. I don't think it's a binary thing where it's like either he deserved it or didn't deserve it. I think you get your impression colored by certain activities. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I do think, like, as long as we're talking about defining the difference between his his ability to sell and the quality of his work, a lot of hay was made about the movie. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Which is, you know, lots out of his lots. hands. Right. Yeah. And so I think you get the idea that, you know, these aren't labors of love for the guy. These are definitely commercial activities. But it feels Plus like... It's a 1974 work. The um, macho lead in that movie was going to be played by... Rock Hudson, Hudson, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. right, yes, yeah, yep. yeah, which is interesting, yeah. 
Um, so speaking of the money, I want to talk a little bit about the motive for Alan Mallory's murder, which that appears to be you're sort of led to believe, obviously, uh, Riley Greenleaf is going to lose money if he loses his top selling author. But that seems like kind of a weak reason, especially to go through this much trouble to kill him. Uh, so I was working on a vengeance angle until I think 15 minutes before the episodes end oh, when they just yes. drop out of nowhere, the million dollar life insurance. Right. Policies. Yes. Which that's a weird, yeah, that's odd. It is odd too because before. Yeah. And also because I, you know, I think they would have laid the groundwork for Riley Greenleaf is the sole partner in this enterprise or something, because that million, which has a terrible logo, by the way, Oh, it has a terrible logo. It has Greenleaf, a terrible Greenleaf Publications has like, a terrible they, logo. Good lord! I think that they're, they drop they drop a few hints, like they're very subtle. I don't know if you guys caught them. That Greenleaf <laughs> might be in financial trouble. Oh, maybe. Um. So, so number one, he's redoing his house to make it look like an old lady's kitchen. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's yeah. very expensive. Yeah. And number two, he's being sued by the Canadian government for copying their flag for his publishing company <laughs> yes, logo. Yes, that's right. I thought he was being pursued by the leprechauns he ripped it off of. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the interior decoration in this show needs – I hope Columbo Interiors on Tumblr has covered it because not only is Riley Greenleaf's house just this lemon yellow and cream-colored disaster area, but Marriott mm-hmm. Hartley's apartment – the is, craziest shag carpet in the known hemisphere. All oh, right, yeah, yeah. And also, like the porcelain dog, the life-size porcelain dog. Oh, I didn't notice that. Plate. I didn't notice oh, that. At one point, she like sits right next to it, and it's oh, it's it's the ugliest beyond belief. And we've seen some ugly houses in Colombo, oh, but that course. is remarkable. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and also there's uh, in terms of like the graphic design things, uh, you see like mock-ups of past super popular books that Greenleaf has published. Things like My Home Was a House and Modern, Modern Aztec, Aztec Courtship, courtship practices. practices. What the <laughs> hell? Well, you know in uh, in Breakfast of Champions they make reference to Kilgore Trout working on books that had pornographic covers and then like his science fiction stories inside. And I feel like well, I think, that's what was it, kind the, of what's happening here. The seventy-year itch too in that film. There's things too where yeah. they're like taking classic, classic novels, and putting like these racy covers on them. Tom Yule's character works on a bunch of those. Yeah, yeah. So I think yeah. definitely what's happening. Like, mm-hmm. Oh god! I, you, you definitely get the idea that there was a there was a scene that I didn't quite understand what was happening, uh, because you get the photo shoot and the photo shoot is like. Oh, that's that's crazy. Slightly, slightly like you know, Pornhub community channel kind of stuff. It, 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 it's right. like that that uh, armory place in uh, San Francisco, pretty much. You think it's something in the midst <laughs> yeah, of that? And, and following common, following common publishing company procedure, they're doing the photo shoot in an office in the editorial department, <laughs> right, yes, three doors course. down from the president. Yeah, uh, and then all the books have the lurid covers, and then later on he's watching a film, and there's oh yeah, what is he no watching? What film it is? I don't know, but this you know, seems creepy. It is because Cassidy is just chewing and grinning like he's got a he's breaking a walnut between his teeth. <laughs> oh he's, yeah, he's killing yeah, yeah. nuts. Oh yeah, and then when Columbo interrupts him, he gets furious for a second. Yeah. I was like, is he watching a? Is he watching a stag flick? What is? Then, like, why would he be watching that for the public? I don't know. Yeah. Why do they have a movie? No, that that scene you know? also, the where they're doing the cover shoot in the editorial department. Yeah. Has one of my favorite bits of random dialogue in it. What is it? Which is where the female model is complaining during the photo shoot, and the <laughs> photographer is going, "What's wrong?" And she says, "His T-shirt smells." Oh right! Yes, I wrote that down. Yes. I don't know That's, what it means either. That that is a strong contender for the title for this episode of the podcast. Actually, <laughs> I got like a three or four, but that's definitely one of them. That modern Aztec courtship practices—it's all made in the USA—and how to blow up anything in ten easy lessons. Those are the four front runners for this one. I wonder what all the lessons yeah. are. I don't know. <clears throat> 
I, I so, just like to register a complaint about that too, because how to blow up anything in ten easy steps? What have I got all day? <laughs> <laughs> there was there was a scene that we were very disappointed didn't work out the way we thought it had, but um, when uh, when Kane is on his way to murder Mallory. And he's got that plastic bag that he's put his gun and his gloves and everything else in. And the my wife, Kate, points out, is that a fertilizer bag? Because it's covered in flowers. And we're like, oh, that would be amazing if, like, the only bags he had were fertilizer bags. Oh, from, oh. And we oh. thought for sure that was going to, and then it turned out it was just, like, a really terrible 1970s design oh, okay. plastic bag. Which yeah. is a shame, because that, that was the first of two things that I thought were going to turn out to be important clues and did not. Oh, and the other, other one. Well, this is insane, and I'm sorry to have done it, but here we go. Did you There's did you one, diagram episodes over 30 years I ago, did. John? Oh, Jesus Christ. I did. I diagrammed the heck out of this one, because I was trying to track oh, all his alibis and how he scheduled them. Uh but there's uh, there's one of the scenes. It's the first time we see the logo for his company. He's sitting in front of it, and he's wearing a checked a checked suit. I think like a a pink shirt or a lavender shart yeah. with with a tartan tie. And then he's got a uh, a pocket square, mm-hmm. right? Sure. The, the next scene. The next scene is when he goes to uh, Kane's garage apartment to murder him. And he's got the overcoat on, and you can see that he's still wearing that same suit. And I thought, oh, and then, right? So then a few scenes later, he's wearing a whole different outfit, but he has the same pocket square. And I thought, oh, the pocket square is going to have some kind of residue on it. And then, but no, that was, that's not what happened. It was just a costuming just a, issue. It was. And also, I spent a long time identifying the tartan. Wait, what? I was under Wait, the impression what? that... I was thinking, I wonder if the tartan... Greenleaf belonged to one of the great old clans. Of... <laughs> yeah. Well, I did, like, Greenleaf is clearly not a Scottish name, but I would, no. like, Cassidy, Cassidy's Irish. Let's see if they have a Cassidy tartan. It's not the tartan. So I, I did spend probably about an hour going through different tartan identification sites, and as near as I can tell, <sighs> it's the Cunningham tartan. Oh, okay. Yeah, doesn't mean anything. It's just a nice-looking tartan. The closest I got to that... <laughs> um. The fact that uh, Spillane's office of everything in this looks so much like a like what you would assume like the the, the prototype of a like a forties film noir detective private detective office would look like. Yeah. So look at that, and then also like the locksmith is the Westlake locksmith. So it's like, oh, Donald Westlake. And I was trying to think, like, are there other things where they were trying to, like, yeah, pepper it, in references uh, to crime writers to this? And I can't be like, no, not really. <laughs> you get wound did. up. Yeah, I don't think they did. That, that, that's as far as I went with that. Yeah. Speaking of uh, his office. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, Leonard, go ahead, please. You notice that when Columbo first uh, asked him about the key... And how they, you know, there was a difference between the keys that were found on the ground. Uh, um, Greenleaf says, all keys look alike to me. Yeah. What is that? He's a key racist. <laughs> He's appropriating lock culture. I'm, I'm, I'm glad uh, we set things aside for that. That's... <laughs> uh, while we're in, uh, while we're in, well, the only uh, other deep cut that I had was that Greenleaf smokes Virginia Slim. So, <laughs> oh, really? I didn't notice that. Yeah. Oh, in in uh, the other, the primary thing I noticed about Mallory's office is that he has a bust of Mark Twain in it. Yes, right. which That's I can't thing. think I can't yeah. think of a writer less like Mickey Spillane. <laughs> yeah, outside of like Ogden Nash. <laughs> There, there was. I don't. I don't remember whether it was when he was talking to Mallory at his office or when he confronted him at the party, but at some point Greenleaf says, um, "Like he's talking about the party," and he goes, "Did you invite Norman Mailer?" Yeah, and I was like, goes, "Oh what God, is that about? Yeah. yeah, is Norman Mailer going to be in this episode? That would be amazing. That would be incredible to see that." And then, and then he and uh, Jack Cassie have a weird, like, sort of awkward polar bear fight off under a tree. That'd be wonderful for like fifteen yeah. minutes, just lumbering around each other, stabbing. Like, yeah, I, bet, I, bet, I bet 
Norman Mailer would have done it too. What else did he have going on? You know? Exactly. Especially back then, he would have been drunk or weird, and who knows? Actually, he would have been—he would have been a great cameo or a great victim on a Columbo episode, and on Batman. <laughs> Actually, yeah, Norman Mailer on Batman. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been like some weird celebrity cameo out of the window, or at some sort of weird party who's getting robbed or something. Yeah. Yeah. I recently, Kate and I recently watched, we got the DVDs of the Batman 66 show from the libraries. We watched all of them over the course of like a month or five weeks. And uh, you learned to hate the window gag real quick. Yeah, I could see that. It's never funny. It just disrupts all the action of the show. It, it tones it down. You know, yeah, it's not Batman good. Batman 66 talk on Columbo. Eh. We talk Columbo a lot. We can take some time out. That's right. Yeah, we never we never go off on tangents on this show <laughs> at all. No one ever hates that amongst our listenership, I'm sure. But if we if we do want to go back on track, we have yet to talk about the direction of this episode, which has a lot of interesting. Oh, stuff. I know, especially especially in the first very, very in the, mur- the murder the murder section the the segmenting of the image like the weird that is some wonderful wonderful stuff. Yeah, We're seeing things and- happening simultaneously tiny blocks in the middle of the screen it, it's yeah there's some great stuff in terms of that in this episode there's uh i was calling it angly hulk screen but yes exactly no yeah no that's that's good yeah, yeah. But, these, but these little video inserts are terrific and oh yeah wonderful it's great it. because it it's one of those things that rewards also, uh, viewing. Uh, brady bunch family introduction screen right <laughs> yes uh so that was great, and I think this is the only Columbo I've ever seen that employs Dutch angles. Yeah, I was you, you mentioned that the other day, and I was trying to think of others, and I think you might be right. Yeah. Yeah, because while, while Cassidy is drunk or faux drunk or whatever he's trying to be, or just really competently drunk, uh, the camera is constantly tilted. Yeah, no, like what I really noticed was uh, when he goes to the Tiki Bar, and he's getting out of his car and going towards the entrance... The camera mm-hmm. visibly kind of moves. Yeah. Slightly tilting, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I had not seen this. Hey, there you go. There's your there's your Batman 66 thing. Also, some more there, right. people. Enjoy it. I think uh, the best think use of it was... Possibly he... whoever directed this. I, I can't remember, but whoever directed this had maybe seen uh, Rosemary's Baby. Hmm? Oh, mm-hmm. how, how so? What do you mean? Please expand. Well, that movie is—it was very popular at that time, and it was full of crazy Dutch angles like that. Well, he directed the computer war tennis shoes, so yes, <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of that. I feel like we could maybe tie it back to Touch of Evil. Go see movies too, RJ. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, so the the place that I thought the Dutch angle was oh, best. Hold on, hold on. Sorry, what? I gotta I gotta stop right. for a second because. I'm looking at the uh, guy's directing credits, and I just read uh, the the oral history of Star Trek early days thing that came out this past year. This guy directed The Cage and the Menagerie. And the Menagerie, yeah. Yeah, he directed those episodes. It's like, oh, okay, that's... I did not know that. He directed the pilot of Moonlighting. He directed Remington Seal, many episodes of Hill Street Blues, which actually kind of makes yeah. sense because James Sicking, Sick- who plays yeah. a uniformed cop, uncredited... Is in this episode yep. as a pretty good Howard, Howard Hunter, yeah. Yeah, holy cow. Sorry, please go. Gre- Gregory Sierra's in this somewhere, too, and I couldn't find I know, him. that's the thing. I saw him in the credits, and I was watching for him, and I did not know where he was. I don't think I saw him in this. And I recognized the character's name, but I couldn't tell you where it was from. It's really frustrating. Let's let's send our listeners off on a hunt yeah, if to you, find... Yeah, if you can find, if you can find the fellow from uh, the first couple of years, uh, Gregory Sierra, the fellow from the first couple of years of Barney Miller... And this thing, please let us know where he's in this episode. Because, oh god, you know what? He directed six episodes of Batman, I'm just now seeing. What, uh, Greg Sierra? No, 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 the guy directed oh. this episode directed six episodes of the uh, 66 Batman series. So, right. there's your Dutch Angles. The guy, I knew, just re- the guy knew from I just, Dutch Angles. I just realized that I have another Batman uh, Columbo connection. This will be Which, the only episode besides uh, his own that Chris Sims will listen to. <laughs> yes. Yeah, while while he's recording it, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to get back because I can't remember the writer's name. But there uh, there was a writer uh, on a number of Batman 66 episodes and some very funny ones 
who actually was also a repeat Columbo writer. Oh, okay. And I am blanking, so I'm going to go do a little research while we chat about other stuff. Well, let's talk about some of the uh, the, the uh, classic um, underlying Columbo stuff that appears in this. Uh, good insult on the car as he goes to Chasen's, the fancy Los Angeles restaurant, and he goes into Chasen's to meet with Marriott Hartley and, and the fancy Rotund Fellow, and uh, Columbo, all he wants in the fancy restaurant, chili. Yeah. Chili and ketchup. Chili and, and iced tea. Chili, yeah, chili, ketchup, icy, like, and then is shocked at the check when it comes. And then there's like a very pounds. old, and then there's a very old-fashioned gag when he sees it, gets the check, six seventy-five. Oh, the the fancy waiter had forgotten to put on the cost of the iced tea, so it's actually a higher check than Columbo thought. They spend so much time on that very very old gag of someone not wanting to pay for food. The IMDb so trivia, classic, by the way. That's a classic Leonard Pierce dinner, by the way, and I would love to be able to get it for only six seventy-five. Oh, I know. Right? I, I would like some chili and iced tea. That would be wonderful if I find a good place for that. Yeah. I, IMDb uh, uh, tells me that the place in question is actually world-renowned for their chili. Chasen's is? Oh. Apparently so. Because oh. yeah. I remember like hearing about Chasen's... Um, uh, I, I, it, was, it was like a nerd in high school. What? And I had a subscription to... Um, Premier Magazine, just to find out everything's going on about the movie industry. Because, yeah, why... No stupid reason. It was dumb. It was a waste of money. But, like, I remember Chasen's being one of the restaurants. Like, oh, that's one of the places where the power players go. It's one of the (laughs) old-fashioned Hollywood, uh, L.A. power restaurants. So I remember that. And Spago. It's like, okay. So I saw it here, like, oh, Chasen's! I know about Chasen's! Oh, I do like I do like the yeah. gag at the beginning with the uh, the valet who refuses to give Columbo a ticket. Right, I'm not going to for forget car. that car. I'll remember that yeah. thing. I'll remember you. That's yeah. that's good. That's a good little <laughs> scene building. That's a that's a gag that if they did it in a Columbo remake, I'd be perfectly happy with. That's a good gag. Yes, sure, sure, of course. But my another favorite little, the... little another little classic Columbo bit hmm. is. Um, Columbo being very solicitous of his wife again. Oh, the Be- the Betty Davis films. Yes, staying up all night to watch. Yeah, Betty he said Davis. he says he's been up all night because his wife wanted to watch a Betty Davis movie that was on at two o'clock in the morning. And then he goes on and on about how Betty Davis is so great. Mm. But it's also you think like, mm-hmm. yeah, Betty Davis, maybe she could. Myrna Loy was on the show. Maybe Betty Davis yeah. could have done an episode. She was in Pocketful of Miracles with Falk. So oh, there you go. See, there you go. Uh, my favorite part of that scene, though, was Marriott Hartley dressed like uh, somebody's rodeo sweetheart. <laughs> that outfit was insane. That bright red cowboy costume. I love that outfit. I, uh, Anna and I had a disagreement over that outfit. She hated it, and I thought it was super slick. <laughs> the disagreement is you want her to get one. Did you? Did you? Did it put you in the mind of rodeo days, Leonard, back in Arizona? I, I think it may just. Uh, it just may be some kind of reminiscent childhood crush on Carmen Sandiego. <laughs> There she is. She's right there. That's where in the world she is. There you go. Yes. <laughs> in uh, in oh, Arizona. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. In Southern Arizona, we don't have President's Day or Lincoln's birthday or Washington's birthday. We have something called Rodeo Days. Okay. I swear to God. And so we don't celebrate presidents, but we all get to go watch a parade and then go to the rodeo. All right. That was my youth. <laughs> God. God yeah, but, uh, Chicago has the uh, Casimir S. Pulaski Day. Wow. Yeah, uh, d- 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 yeah. Uh, Philadelphia, we have um, no, Founders Day, right? We have, we have what? Founders Day? No. Did you have Founders Day? No, we got nothing in Philadelphia. No. Now we have Rizzo Day. That's it. The, the, the giant bronze statue of Rizzo comes to life once a year and marches down, uh, marches down <laughs> South Broad Street and uses the club in his cummerbund. Uh, to beat labor agitators and minorities. That's what we have. I like the, and then I he like goes the back that, to sleep for another what? year. I like the idea of there being a Frank Rizzo Golden Jubilee. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> oh, anyway, gosh. so I did my research, and uh, uh, Stanley Ralph Ross yes. is the writer in question. Right. Wrote several episodes, uh, not just of Batman, but Incredible Hulk, Super Friends, a bunch of Saturday morning cartoons. So he's he's got a good career with the Kitty Winks, but he also wrote Swan Song, the episode oh. where 
first brought Leonard on to discuss. Right. And Any Old Port in a Storm. Oh, good. I Wonderful. like that episode. Nice. Oh, I do too. I can't wait. Tangentially, to uh, tangentially, did you know that Mickey Spillane got his uh, start writing comic books? Oh, which ones? Ones we've never heard of that died after three months, like the 30s I and 40s? He, or? I think he started... I think he started with Charlton. Oh! So, yeah, so ones, that, ones that uh, burn yeah. up easily. But he wrote some... Uh, I know he wrote some Captain America Oh, in the 40s. Who huh. didn't? Um, I wrote some Captain America in the 40s. Uh, in, in his Wikipedia entry, it claims he wrote Superman and Batman, but I don't remember yeah, ever seeing his name on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was working for Timely back in the 40s, which was Marvel Comics' predecessor. It looks like he worked on USA Comics and uh, Human Torch. And he may have... Oh, this is... I'm not going to say this. Oh, he may have created Spider-Man. That's great. No, he, he created a character with a really offensive racist name. Okay. Well, there we'll, you go. We'll leave it there. Look it up for yourself. That, that's some, that's right, some, you that's some research. you got to tell us after we stop recording. Yeah, I'll that, tell that's, you a, after. That, that's some uh, reading that, uh, and research that our listeners can do at home. <laughs> that's what you can do. Gosh, who yes. would have imagined Check your local library. created a racist character? I can't right? believe it. Uh, let, let's get off of that, then. Uh, let's talk about some other folks who also added their connections uh, to Columbo uh, from this episode. Alan Fudge, which that's a wonderful name, plays uh, Greenleaf's lawyer. He was in like, a couple other episodes. I think the one we've mm-hmm. covered... Uh, Columbo goes to guillotine. He's one of the uh, government guys uh, who buys into the uh, con man's whole shtick. He's in that one. So, the seventy one. You know, the another seventies episode. The two. Sorry, yes. The interesting thing about that character is that he went on to create the Sopranos. David Chase, you see. (laughs) Oh, I didn't even get that. Oh God! Right. Oh, jeez. Leonard Leonard guys. likes to sink him deep and from far away. <laughs> I, Thanks, I everybody. Like... <laughs> Here all week. That's Click. the end of the show. We'll be doing. Uh, I do feel that. like we're missing stuff, but I'm trying to remember what it is. I don't feel like Marriott Hartley had much of a role in this one. No, I mean, especially yeah, compared, kind of... especially compared to the one she did with uh, the the um, oh, I'm Ruth, Ruth the, Buzzy. Yeah, the yeah. Ruth the, the Ruth. Ruth Buzzy, yes, the Ruth Buzzy episode of Columbo. <laughs> Ruth Gordon, of the course, Ruth trying Gordon to catch episode me. of Columbo. She had a much stronger role in that one, but she's okay in this. But I mean, it just wasn't written to be more of a. Yeah. Well, she's a fact checker in this. One. That's literally all she does is yes. like she shows up and reads something, and Columbo leaves. Yeah. And there much. was an implication, you know, uh, uh, Cassidy drips with venom for her, calling her a, a muse, but in the flesh. And he right, implies yeah. that she's. He's implies that she's. Yeah. yeah. Or like, not necessarily a fair, but that she's being used as an enticement for authors. Like that was, and well, she's not just a, the agent is all she. She's like he's, yeah. she's his agent, which yeah, not, not that, founded, I think that just, I would say. yeah, I think it's just not like a sour grapes and Cassie's character being a, a right. jerk and a creep, pretty much. But I don't which, think there's a lot. I would love. I would love to talk about some of Cassidy's sick burns. Oh sure, okay. please let's do. You know what? Let let's let's start winding things down with these sick burns. Of Riley Greenleaf, please go ahead. Uh, my favorite one is when he—I think it's when he's at Chasen's, and he—he's pretending to be super drunk and aggressive, so the bartenders and everybody will remember him, you know, as part of his alibi. And he says, "You deserve to be in the valley." Oh yes, I wrote that one down. That's great. Like you and this bar deserve to be in the valley. It's like wow, I, I've never uh, been to the valley, but I can see that that's an insult. It's a good one. And there's also when he, uh, I kind of like this one because when he drinks the scotch, he orders scotch and he drinks it and says, this tastes like bog. <laughs> yes. But it's scotch. It's supposed to taste like right, bog. Yeah. Right, it's supposed to be a little peaty. Right, yeah. uh, I, I'm very fond of the uh, sass and the fat lady because that's such a vaudeville setup. Oh, yes, right. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. In your condition, I would call the police. Well, ma'am, in your condition, I would call a plastic surgeon. Yes, Swan. exactly, yeah. Oh, I do love He Jack plays Hester. that and, whole sequence. Somewhere, somewhere in my notes, and I can't remember when he said this. I can't remember whether it was when he was talking to Eddie or when he was talking to Spillane's character. But at some point he says, sex is our only mysticism. 
Yes. <laughs> and I was like, if if Mickey Spillane actually heard him say that, he would punch him in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, Mickey Spillane was nowhere near the set on that day. Oh, God, he was barely on the right. same film. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, I, I would, oh, sorry. Here's sorry. one of my questions. How is the garage still standing? Yeah, I was wondering about that, too. Because <laughs> uh, uh, for folks who haven't seen it, um, Cassidy's character... Uh, kills uh, the creepy bomber dude uh, with drugged champagne, which that happens quite a lot in Columbo. Needled champagne kills a lot of people in this series over the the 40 years or so. Uh, So the guy is pretty much dead from that or drugged out from that. So then Cassidy actually uses the guy's book to put together a bomb or a grenade that'll go off after he leaves. Cassidy drives off a fair distance. He's sitting in his car lighting his cigarette, and you hear this huge explosion. But it doesn't completely decimate the guy's yeah. wooden structure above a garage apartment. It leaves a few scorch marks here and there. It leaves the files which is, intact. Which, seems which a little... is loaded with explosive chemicals. Right, yeah. So yeah. Uh, the things that up, as much as I like this episode, that was one of the things where I kind of felt like, eh, you stretching a little bit. TV show, yeah. you're pulling things kind of. Yeah, that was not the uh, that, that was not the best handled thing for me. I don't know, but still, I liked it. But still, uh, yeah. overall positive. Yes. Oh, and also, uh, there's a reference to a past episode in this towards the end, where uh, Columbo and trying to ingratiate himself with Greenleaf say like, like he goes on the thing like, oh, maybe I should start writing like a, a book about some of the uh, murderers and the cases I've had, and he directly references and describes a candidate for crime, which we have yet to discuss on this program. Uh, the one with Jackie Is that Hanover. where he goes, uh, oh yeah. yeah, there's this sergeant down at the station who's written a bunch of crime novels. Oh, that one I was wondering, actually, wait, that one I was wondering, is that referring to somebody, maybe a specific crime writer? Yeah, I was I wondering think, that myself. Yeah, I, I think figured you guys I think would know. It's Joseph Wamba, isn't it? Maybe I don't know. I have no oh. idea. That's, uh, uh, because that's... it seemed like that was a very like specifically mentioning other, which that was the thing. My like a stupid thing where like oh the the PI office for Splane, Westlake Keys referencing that guy that had me thinking like were there other references to other right crime writers throughout this thing that I missed completely. I he was the fellow who. This is Wamba was an LA cop and he like his earliest stuff was in the early seventies so. Oh, so it could have been. The uh, IMDb has has said it is, and it does sound pretty likely. If it had been New York, I would have said it was an Ed McMahon joke, but that would have uh, proceeded undercover by a decade. So right, yeah. But in um, the course of him talking about that, yeah, he directly talks about uh, that case from Candidate for Crime, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was interesting because it's not too often they actually talk about that. I think I know in uh, Colombo. The college one in the nineties. He talks about a, a specific other episode in that one too, and this one he does. But it, it doesn't happen very often that they will reference uh, something that's like a past episode. I thought that was kind yeah, of only neat. a couple times we know of. It's nice. Yeah. Anyway, it's weird to think of Columbo with continuity <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, that's a thing that's odd. It's like he just he goes does... from thing to thing to thing. Doesn't seem to care about it. Just works. Just does the work, and that's it. But it carries the stuff with him, maybe? Which mm-hmm. is an odd thing to think about. Yeah, he just hovers from place to place. He only bre- he only brings up previous cases when he's got something to gain from it. Because like, the only other time I can think of it happening in was uh, Columbo Goes to College. Right, yeah. Yeah. Uh. All right. Anyway, whew. I just tired us all out. Well, you know what? Maybe this is a good time to start winding things down. Uh, so we'll go around. As usual, we start with the guest. Uh, Leonard, uh, your overall impressions of this episode, what did you think of it? How'd you like it? Oh, this is a good one. Uh, I would say that this is probably of the three that I've done so far, easily my so favorite. So far? Well, somebody's got a high impression of themselves. Yeah. And... Uh, Maybe one of my favorite Columbo's ever. It was oh. really tightly scripted. Yeah. It was really well directed. Um, you know, you had two extremely memorable villains. Mm-hmm. 
you had uh, Columbo really Columboing it up because as much as he uh, did his methodical, you know, guy picking at a tiny little thread routine, it was clear he had Greenleaf Peg from the very beginning and was, you know, just pulling him along in the boat. Uh, so it's classic <laughs> Columbo. Had a lot of great little touches. It was funny, but not a comedy episode. And it was creepy, but not a weird, creepy episode. I think this was a really solid one. I'm, I'm uh, very pleased with it overall. I, I'd say for my uh, appraisal of it, I go with yours. I can't argue a single thing he said. And yeah, you, you nailed it. it it's, it's a really good episode. And I have to say this... I don't know, this might be my favorite Cassidy episode. As much as I like the uh, weird magic one, mm-hmm. this one is a lot more consistent, a lot more solid, just in terms of the story, uh, the mystery, how it's unraveled, and plus the fact that you got Mickey Spillane playing a writer, which is some sort of weird inside joke thing, almost. Um, yeah, no, I think... You know what, I'll say it, this is my favorite Cassidy episode. This This was very, very, very good... It's a great episode of Columbo. Uh, people should watch it. John, yes, sir. Uh, what would you rate this? Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm with you. I think this is my favorite Cassidy as well, uh, because as strong as both um, Murder by the Book and oh my gosh, what's the now magician one called? Now, now you see him. Yeah, as strong as those were, those did have some long expositionary stuff that had like explaining things the audience kind of could figure it out. This one didn't. This one left a lot to the audience's imagination. You had to Which connect a lot of dots. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah, it made you work um, for it, but not yeah, but it, yeah. 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 And I love that uh that Cassidy, that Riley Greenleaf, instead of being the murderer who keeps interrupting Columbo and saying, "Oh, well, here's how I think it probably happened." He lets Columbo do that. He sets up all the pieces. And then Columbo starts saying, looks like somebody broke into your car. And he goes, oh, so you're saying somebody broke into my car and took my gun. And then Columbo goes, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, right. that's a nice switch up, and it gives them a yes. good energy together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes it even better when he runs out of alibi and he starts to fall apart at the end. Right. Great direction. Yeah, he had a great look at the end. Like yes. when he finally realized he didn't have any more alibi to spool out. And, and he it just, just so slumps, abrupt. you know, his body language. Yeah, yeah it just, it just, it's a very abrupt ending. We're just like, that's it, you're screwed. Yep, credits. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, so it's really strong. The direction is fascinating. Like yes. a lot of these early Columbus, it's very cinematic. But this one is downright experimental mm-hmm. uh, for what's going on on television. So I would have to give this one yes. uh, 10 out of 10 simple steps to blow up anything. There we go. Very yeah. good. Thank you. <laughs> that's the most the most nice. appropriate one I've ever managed to do that's very good yes alright well thank you Leonard for coming back and doing this one hey, if folks want to see what you're doing what you're writing what's going on these days where should they go uh, they can just go to leonardpierce.com uh, it should be pretty easy to figure out um, just uh, look in the direction of the late uh, 2000s era web design there we go. Great. <laughs> That'll be comforting. It'll be a comforting thing. It's like, ooh, it's the blanket of that to see. Yeah, so only 90s kids will remember your blog style? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, let's, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's the show for this time around. Uh, if you wanted to listen to other episodes of our program, you go to jomtpodcast.com or search us out in the TV and film sections of iTunes or uh, Google Podcasts or whatever you happen to use to listen to such things. Uh, If you want to uh, see some other stuff, uh, like uh, screen grabs, further thoughts, things other people in the internet have done with Columbo, you go to jomtpodcast.tumblr.com. If you want a very swift, up-to-the-minute updates and information and news about our show, because, boy, that's happening every single day. Or if you want to see uh, GIFs, uh, about my deficiencies as a co-host of this <laughs> program. You can follow us on JOMT Podcast on Tumblr. Uh, that's pretty much it. If you want to write to us to complain about those deficiencies, uh, we always like getting emails at Columbo at thecitydesk.net. That's the show. I'm RJ White. I'm John Morris, and that gift made my week. It was great. I felt good about that. 
And then the skeleton at a window was wonderful. Next, Thank you. Next week, next week, by the way. Yes. This is the next podcast. Here's my suggestion. Sure. I want you. I want you to start coming up with great segues, and then I'm going to tear off in other directions. Sure. I don't. Know if let's I can do that. let's try. I, 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 I just. I'm, I'm physically unable to do that. I, I can only. It's my. It's my family. It's my upbringing. I can only just ignore segues. That's it. That's all I can do. You're an excited little terrier, and we need that energy. The the, the Whites and the Adamses, they can only ignore segues. They cannot make them. I apologize. <laughs> I will take that to my grave, my family tradition. Anyway, goodbye, folks. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye. Oh, listen, just one more thing. Oh, I'm so sorry. I what we've done to you. your car, look what you've done to our car. Tell him, Ralph. Oh, uh, well, sir, uh, you, you, you did pull out without looking. What? That's ridiculous. You, Ralphie, are a fool, you're a liar, and you're a menace to your fellow man. Don't take that from him, Ralph. And you, madam, shut up. I suggest you call that number the first thing in the morning. That's my insurance agent. He'll know how to deal with you. Sir, in your condition, I should call the police. Madam, in your condition, I'd call a plastic surgeon. <laughs>